Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net. And from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement. Offering undergraduate and advanced degrees. publichealth.indiana.edu. Hello and welcome to Noon Edition. I'm Sarah Whitmire along with my co-host for today, Kyle Stokes. Kyle and I are filling in for Bob Zaltzberg and Mary Catherine Carmichael. Today we're talking with journalists and newspaper editors in our coverage area about the big local and national stories of 2013. This week's program is pre-recorded, so unfortunately you can't call in. But you can find more information on our website, wfiu.org slash Noon Edition. While you're online, feel free to follow us on Twitter at Noon Edition. Now let's go ahead and introduce our guest. Today we're joined by Max Jones. He's the editor of the Tribune Star. Andrea Murray is the managing editor of the Herald Times. And Sarah Clifford, who's the editor of the Brown County Democrat. Welcome, everyone. Thank you. Thank you for being here today. So let's just start. Question to all of you. Just what were the biggest stories of 2013? You want to just we'll start with you, Sarah, and go across. Uh, Well, one that I'm certainly sticking out in the minds of parents in Brown County is the shuffle in our school district. We had several schools. um, Well, we had four elementary schools to start out with. We now have three, and we have an intermediate school that did not exist before. Um, So that has caused a lot of um, questions and adjustment in Brown County as students shift to a new building that they're not used to and a new structure of how to uh, learn in Brown County. Um, We also had a pretty big uh, deal with the courthouse renovation that was proposed, uh, petitioners actually defeated the commissioner's plans to renovate the historic courthouse downtown by an eight-to-one margin. Uh, so now the community is back at the drawing board trying to figure out what to do with that project to make some corrections in ADA accessibility and issues like that. Um, so those have both garnered a lot of headlines for us. Uh, we have a large economic development story that just broke a couple of weeks ago. The sock factory, Four Bare Feet, that used to be in Helmsburg, uh, was destroyed by a fire a few years ago. And now that building has been sold, finally, to a company that's going to be bringing in several jobs to Brown County. Mm-hmm. So we're very excited about that to see how that develops within the next few years. Yeah. How about you, Max? Well, you know, it's it's been kind of interesting the last couple of days as I thought about uh, what's going on in Terre Haute, uh, Vigo County, West Central Indiana for the past year. And it's sort of remarkable that I can't point to uh, any uh, big overarching news stories that just got everybody's attention and held it for a while. Uh, on the other hand, I wouldn't say it's been a dull year. Uh, it, it, there's been quirky little things that have happened that have kept everybody's interest, and there's been some ongoing stories uh, uh, having to do with Indiana State University, uh, the city of Terre Haute, the Vigo County School Corporation, uh, those sorts of things. So, so you know, it's been issue-related. It's been, it's been interesting. Uh, my goodness, they're drilling for oil on the campus of Indiana State University. Right. Uh, and, and did we ever think we'd see huge uh, oil derricks uh, in the middle of a, of a, of a state university campus? Uh, we have uh, armed guards now patrolling uh, the schools uh, of Vigo County. Uh, the sorts of things that when you stop and think about it, they're pretty remarkable. Uh, but uh, I, I, w- I would say it's those sorts of things that have really kind of uh, got our interest in, and got us through the year uh, in the absence of uh, of huge, big uh, stories. It's never dull that way, though. It hasn't been dull. <laughs> Doing something different, for sure. How about you, Andrea? Well, it hasn't been dull, but like uh, like you said, Max, the um, the year didn't have the you know giant headline stories that some years have. We've had some pretty lively times in Bloomington. We had, for example, the um, advent of parking meters downtown, and uh, that has sort of an ongoing issue. There's still people uh, happy about that, and there's others crying in their beer uh, about whether or not it's worth parking, paying for parking downtown. Um, There's going to be more of that coming next year, I think. There'll be maybe some changes in it, maybe adjustments, but uh, that has been an, an interesting ongoing story for Bloomington. Also, 
the, we had an attempt, like you in Brown County, we had an attempt at a, uh, a new um, tax funding source, the food and beverage tax, which was initially looked like it was had pretty good chance. And uh, as things developed and unfolded in Bloomington, uh, the opposition came out and organized and defeated the uh, – well, it wasn't an actual vote, but it was so clear that there wasn't going to be the support there for it that they withdrew that um, plan to bring it to a vote. So the convention center plans, the ones that would have the t- the money that would have supported an increase in the or improvement in the convention center, um, is off the table for now. There's looking into the coming year a possibility of an innkeeper's tax, but there hasn't been a lot of data on that yet. So. Maybe too early to speculate on how well it might do. And then the homeless uh, issues in Bloomington. We had the um, opening of Crawford House or Crawford Homes, I believe it's called. Um, This is a uh, a grant-subsidized housing program for homeless, chronically homeless people. And uh, it did uh, provide a lot of housing um, for homeless people in Bloomington. Whether or not there are fewer homeless people actually still homeless in Bloomington is a question that remains to be answered. And there are some who say that uh, additional folks who need housing have migrated here because we are known to be altruistic and humanitarian community that supports people who are in, in great need. So those three issues were interesting. Of course, then there was our women's basketball team. And uh, Max was saying... Well, you're talking about the IU women off yes. to such a great start this year. And the comment I made was it's my understanding that even though they're having a great year this year, they've got one of their best recruiting classes ever coming in next year. So this could be kind of uh, exciting time yeah. for and IU this, women's basketball. This weekend they play uh, in Ohio, and uh, we hope some people from Bloomington go over there. To, yeah. to well, and, and just IU sports in general in 2013, the basketball, the men's <laughs> basketball team, the – yeah, baseball team. Well, with the, the baseball with the college team. World Series run there. That, that was, was a unexpected. big surprise. Yeah, that was great, and it it coincided with the uh, opening of the new stadium here. Um, it was great. Everyone suddenly discovered baseball in Bloomington. We all went out to the games. People bought season tickets. Uh, it just uh, it was a real. Um, enlivening event toward the end of the summer. I still am not quite sure how I feel about a baseball field that is completely turf, but you know, <laughs> it's, it's kind of funny it's looking. It's nice to at least have a stadium. So <laughs> when they when they slide or the ball bounces, you can see the little pellets from yeah. the artificial turf. <laughs> right. I think it was kind of refreshing to people because I think everyone wanted the basketball season to go a little longer and then it's like, you know what, we can get behind this baseball team. Yeah. So I think that was nice. It all of you mentioned something about the economy. So I want to just drill down on that just a little bit more, just maybe even the, the top economic stories. But I think the sock factory is a really interesting one. But then also you had the Little Opry. I'm not sure what's going on with that in Brown County. And was it called Schooner <laughs> Village? Schooner Valley Village Okay, was a project that was proposed many, many years ago before I actually moved to Brown County, I believe. It's gone through a lot of different changes, uh, and suddenly for sale signs popped up at that property that surprised all of us. Uh, There was a large presentation at the high school auditorium with uh, over 100 people there from Brown County wanting to know what was going on with this project last May, and it looked pretty positive. There were going to be uh, a mix of housing and retail shops and a ski slope and um, synthetic snow and all kinds of very big (laughs) ideas. And suddenly, um, it appears it's not, it's not going to go forward. We weren't able to get many answers on why it was for sale, uh, but it appears it's not going to happen at this time, at least not as, as the way it was originally envisioned. The same with us. I know we did some original reporting, but the follow-up reporting has been quite difficult. So. Yes. <laughs> um, and then the Little Opry. The um, little... I noticed all the signs are changed. Correct. It says opening soon. Yes. Now. And we get calls about that, I would say, once every three weeks, if not more often, folks saying, I haven't heard anything about the Opry. And we say, well, we haven't either, really. But I have spoken with the owner of the property, Scott Wayman. He's come into my office several times. I've seen the blueprints. They exist. Uh, It looks very positive. Uh, They did secure a tax abatement from the county, which is a very big deal for us. That has not happened in recent memory. The 10-year tax abatement for about a quarter of a million dollars to help get this started. Uh, But that should should pay for his on-site sewage system. 
And uh, I know Economic Development in Brown County is working very closely with him. So I, I, I am confident it will happen, not in the time frame they were hoping, uh, but it, it is coming soon. I know they originally reported, we reported it was going to be happening, completed in June 2014. That date I'm not sure about, but we'll be following up with that very soon. And Max, you talked about just oil drilling at ISU, but we did a story, too, about it was at a convent, right, Kyle? Right. Where they're proposing oil drilling. Have you all covered that one, too? Right. It was St. Mary of the Woods St. College Mary. and the Sisters of Providence out there on the west uh, side of Eagle County. If any of you ever been out there, it's just a beautiful, beautiful area, one of the greatest uh, areas uh, that, uh, that we all enjoy. We love going out there. But uh, the Sisters of Providence, it was proposed uh, by uh, – uh, an oil company and an oil developer that it's a possibility that they could have uh, some s- substantial uh, oil reserves on their property. And while the sisters have always uh, uh, had their one of their founding principles was environmental uh, uh, concerns, uh, they felt like uh, uh, in the overall big picture of of their uh, their convent and 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 their uh, order that they needed to explore and find out just what was down there and if, by chance, there was a huge uh, uh, oil reserve and there was a lot of money to be made, they felt like they would be able to uh, advance their causes better with that kind of money in in the bank as opposed to uh, taking a a more hardcore approach to to the drilling. So it was sort of an interesting uh, uh, development, an interesting topic, uh, considering it happened to the Sisters of Providence. But right now they're just in the experimental exploratory phase. And, um, you know, the thing about the oil drilling, I, I mean, I, I suppose it could be a boon for those who's, who have the property and the, and the mineral rights that, um, that will benefit from this. Uh, but as a community as a whole, I, I, you know, I don't know that uh, we'll see a, a huge economic uh, boon from that. But I suppose there, there could be some. Uh, overall, the economy is it's been stable. Uh, the, um, uh, the the good thing that's happened to Terre Haute, Vigo County, and really all of West Central Indiana uh, in recent years, really recent decades, is that um, it is a lot more diversified in terms of the businesses that uh, that run there. We're not dependent on anything huge. The really the foundation of uh, the the economy in our area is higher ed. It's uh, health care. Uh, it's retail uh, because uh, being a retail magnet that serves both uh, Indiana and Illinois. Uh, with those sorts of things steady and stable, uh, we can probably survive some of the give and take of a, of a, that normally happens uh, in business and manufacturing. That said, those sectors have been, have been solid. They've been steady. It's nothing, nothing great has happened, but nothing bad has happened either. So I, I think – uh, 2013, if it goes down uh, with that understanding, everybody will take it, yeah. uh, considering uh, <laughs> things that can happen that, that didn't. Uh, and, and they'll just uh, – they live to fight another day. Andrea, I have to ask you about GE and yeah. Smithville. Well, we, we lost jobs. and We lost manufacturing jobs and we lost uh, skilled jobs. And that's a, a you know, the, the wrong direction for us to, to, to be headed in. <clears throat> I hope that it isn't. Uh, a trend into the nu- into the next year. The um, the real ch- engine that's still chugging along, though, is <laughs> building downtown, building student apartments, mixed use. Uh, let's see, um, apartments with uh, retail on the um, ground level. That's the kind of model of these buildings that are going up. We lost a Waffle House. Uh, that's going to be uh, you know mixed use. Residential retail. Um, there'll be uh, others that I can't name them all. I mean, they're just they're just one after another, and I get them confused in my head. But there's also a couple of hotels going up, as uh, Spring Hill Suites and a um, oh I can't remember the name of the other one, one, but uh, I'm, not it, sure, I'm not sure. It's like a it's like a Marriott or something. No, it's I not don't, a Marriott. It's, it's not. It's, it's like a, part of that family, though. I don't know. I'm sure folks will tell us. I'll think yeah. of it, but just don't call in because you can't call in. <laughs> pre-recorded. And, here's, and, here's my question about this new development: Are, Is there enough in terms of the student? It seems to be geared towards student. Well, it ends living. up living. It ends up being student housing. Um, every single person who proposes one of these new projects says it, it's apartments, and anyone can live there, and it's not necessarily student housing, and yet. It 
sort of is the trend that that students move in and um, downtown has has a lot of students living downtown. Um, what I'd like to see personally is somebody to build condos downtown. I know, I know it's driven <laughs> by the market and you need buyers for the condos and whatnot. But if we're going to balance out the student population downtown with people who are residents, full-time, full, full-year residents, long-term residents, then I think you have to build something other than apartments. And so that's my personal preference, but... Uh, um, of course, my, my question is whether they're even reaching occupancy on these on these buildings at all. You know, I, I mean, they are. If they're finding if they're finding the market, obviously, to they build are. them. Yeah. You know, I, I used to live downtown and I, I'm pretty sure my building wasn't full. So you did know, you live in one of those buildings that had every single service, the wireless? I did. The, I, I did not. Well, did not. that that makes <laughs> a difference, difference in the occupancy because everyone wants all those amenities. Yeah, and there's a lot of housing stock on the fringe of town and and uh, uh, some of the older neighborhoods that don't have that, <clears throat> and people move out of that into the downtown new newer places. Yeah. So. I want to remind everyone you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU, and today we're talking about the big stories of 2013 with Max Jones. He's the editor of the Tribune Star, Andrea Murray, the managing editor of the Herald Times, and Sarah Clifford, the editor of the Brown County Democrat. This program is recorded, so we can't take your calls, but certainly you can check out the conversation online. And Kyle, we haven't talked much about education. I'm sure you're <laughs> chomping at the bit here. These guys say there's there's no big story, and there's no one big story. I've been... I've been eating all year, you know, as it as it were. So, I mean, it was in winter. It was Common Core when the legislature was debating it, and how these academic standards have gone away. And uh, you know, basically, it, it seems like we're ready to get out of this national consortium about academic standards, and that could be a big enough story for an entire year. And then we go into spring, and the I step testing system crashes, and so you know, we spent you know kind of middle of spring into early summer covering the I step story and then and then Tony Bennett the Tony Bennett scandal with the A through F grading of controversy that came out surrounding how Tony Bennett's staff handled the grading of uh, of schools that came out in kind of I think that was in late May if I'm not I'm trying to remember the chronology but it seems like we spent much of the rest of the summer covering that story and then the state board and, and Glenda Ritz started going at There's it. There's too many of these stories. They're the, the education system seems to be producing, you know, some kind of big headline um, so so often that it, we're getting fatigued. It's, 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 <laughs> it's, I can't keep track of it. You know, people saying, what is it? Are we for the Common Core? Are we against it? I mean, what happened there? It was a political football. Um, and I think the political situation with Glenda Ritz and certainly Tony Bennett uh, you know, it confuses people. You you look at it and you go, I, I don't know. You know, I don't know how to feel about this because I can't really figure out how this could have come to happen. The I-STEP system crashing, uh, the um, uh, consolidation of schools in Brown County. There's always something interesting going on with schools. And, uh, of course, the armed guards and the, uh, mm. n- you know, just the move toward f- feeling that, the schools need to be safer and how to go about doing that. So. Yeah. I was actually curious about the consolidation story because obviously I follow that from a distance. But, mm-hmm. And, you know, I'm wondering if that sort of fixed the – that was about a million-dollar deficit, right? Correct. I mean, it was uh, projected, I think, in the next two years they had to cut $1 million from the general fund, which is not an easy task, for, no. especially for a school district like Brown County. Um, I don't know that it's fixed it. I know that it's had an effect. It's helping. I've heard from the superintendent they still have some work to do. And they're still talking about how they're going to do that. Mm-hmm. We've we've had. I mean, th- that's a similar story that I think is playing out across the state right now. Is trying to figure out the the economics of school finance have changed to a certain degree. Where I mean, we had this conversation a couple of years ago with with Governor Daniels, essentially recommending that a bunch of school districts consolidate. And there are a lot of small school districts out there. Now, Brown County covers a very large geographic area, mm-hmm. but you know, we we just went through this out in. Um, out in the with the with the Duggar schools out mm-hmm. in in um, northeast Sullivan County, um, no, right. something like that. Right. I'm, and I, I mean, they're essentially the the question is how do you support a small a school as a as an institution for a very small community? And in in uh, in Duggar, they decided that they couldn't support those two schools and had to shut them down. And there's you know a very complicated story. It's the same sort of situation as in Brown County. We're trying to figure out now how with 
kind of new rules of the game with school finance, how small schools can can survive. And that identity is so important to a community. You know, yeah. there are generations of folks in Brown County who have gone to the same school. And it, we did a story on Nashville Elementary closing and moving to Brown County Intermediate School, that building shifting uses. And it was uh, – there were teachers who were crying. There were parents who were crying mm-hmm. because their, their kids could not go the same route they did. And so it was very interesting to watch that progression, um, something going away and something new replacing it and just watching that chapter close. Right. Identity. I've had a conversation with the people who are they're, – they're, the people in Duggar are trying to explore some options about maybe how to keep the school open. Um, you know, watch that for that story early in the year, I'm told. But uh, th- one of the things you mentioned, identity, is they, they asked about was athletics. Can we, can we keep our – our high school's team, you know, in Duggar, Indiana, which is a town of just a couple hundred. So, is that one you've been doing too? Well, it is, and um, um, I, I just feel terrible for the people of Duggar. Um, any anyone who's ever been in a town that's gone through a school closing knows just how wrenching that sort of uh, thing can be. So, I, you know, I know people in Duggar. I've had friends there. I, I, feel, I just feel really bad for the community. The spirit of the community is really going to be shattered by this. Uh, that said, uh, boy, you, all you have to do is look at the maps of, of how that county was drawn up in terms of its uh, school corporation. And the reason it was drawn up that way goes back decades uh, and it was a result of a compromise that they tr- everybody was trying to get along and 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 decide how they were going to consolidate their schools and uh, you know at the time the compromise worked out okay uh, and allowed them to move on but several decades later a lot of the reason these problems exist is 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 a direct uh, long term effect of of that of that compromise uh, I you know I I don't there's just not. Um, there's not a good answer. Uh, the uh, you know the taxing system in, in this state has certainly not uh, benefited uh, small schools, and I think uh, this is we're going to probably see a, another wave of of school closing. It's been a while. There's not been a lot of them, but I think we're going to see uh, see a few more. And here, yeah, we have the advent of charter schools. Mm-hmm. Um, the Monroe County School Corporation. Uh, Community Schools Corporation is concerned about the process that is sort of gaining some steam here where students leave the public school, take a voucher, and uh, enroll in a private school. Um, There there are many private schools here who have uh, gained students this way through, you know, and we have a story listing some of them. Some of them will tell us how many students have come to them from the uh, public schools and others don't share that information, and we we actually have tried to um, formalize a process to get a hold of that information, and, and we're told we, it's a, a privacy issue. So um, the yeah. uh, that voucher process is one thing that we have, you know, dealing with the school system here, and the other is the uh, charter schools. And there are two charter schools on the horizon that um, we'll be hearing about in 2014. And both of them, I, I think, will, they have different missions, and, the, and these charter schools often do have a kind of a mission statement, overall arching, overarching uh, theme. And um, these two have slightly different ones. But um, that's going to come. And I think that the public school officials and, and folks who have Children in public schools are worrying about that because it, it will change the dynamic in the public school financing and uh, just the process. I, I, I don't know what's going to happen, but it's, they're watching it and they're, they're starting to kind of wring their hands a little bit about it. Yeah, we have a lot of conversations. We, me and my reporting colleague, Ellie Moxley, talking about how school finance is set up. And I mean, to, to sort of summarize where all of this is headed is – what does a public school district do when it has – and Ellie brought this up – has said, what do you do with a public school district that's been set up to serve 90 percent of the kids in the county and and say, now you have to serve 80 percent or now you have to serve 70 percent? I mean, you know, in Indianapolis, it's probably – you know, the percentage is even smaller than that. Um, and I think that's – this is the growing pain. This is where we're sort of headed on that front when it comes to finances because with the kids come the dollars. And uh, when your enrollment goes down to 80 percent of the kids in the county, that, that changes how you do business. Yeah. 
We should probably take a break here soon, but I want to remind everyone you're listening to Noon Edition on WFIU today, talking about the top stories of 2013. The program is pre-recorded, but certainly you can go on our website since we can't take your calls. Coming up after the break, we're going to talk about some big national stories and the local impact right now after, after this break. This is Noon Edition on WFIU. Production support comes from Smithville. Information at smithville.net. And IU School of Public Health Bloomington. Online at publichealth.indiana.edu. WFIU News covers South Central Indiana and the state each day. You can read news throughout the day as it's posted on our website at wfiu.org. And you can pick up a digest of all the top stories. It's like a newspaper delivered to your inbox each afternoon. It's a free and easy way to stay on top of not only the headlines, but also the in-depth audio, video, and print news stories you can't get anywhere else. Subscribe right now at WFIU.org news. Welcome back to Noon Edition on WFIU. Today we're talking with journalists and newspaper editors in our coverage area about the big local and national stories of the year. So I think we need to we need to go next to the Affordable Care Act. So it, they started, the website went live October 1st, and since then it just feels like it's been one story after another after another, of course, on a national level. But locally, I want to see, you know, get, get what you all have been doing to talk to people well, in your community. Yeah, we, we've done a number of stories, and they're always kind of the same, which is there are problems, they're trying to fix it, keep trying, um, and the deadline's been extended. Uh, I mean, this is the this is playing out in every community, and, and um, there are plenty of people who are are trying to get on it who didn't at first and now we've finally started having stories about people who actually succeeded uh very happy uh one young man uh you know got on and has his health insurance he's 26 years old he he's paying 55 dollars a month for a you know a health plan he didn't get the one that he wanted because he wanted um anthem or whatever and he got in md wise because it covers it it's hot. The Bloomington Health Hospital or IU Health Bloomington Hospital people um, are in that network, but that's kind of it. I mean, it's it's starting to kind of straighten out. We're seeing some successes, but certainly not in the numbers that we we were told. I'm thinking, Sarah, of the story that you did where, where you went out and, and talked to someone who was uninsured who had absolutely no idea what was going on. I mean, it, it seems like there's a real messaging. I feel like the messaging that surrounded the, the rollout of the Affordable Care Act and the exchanges has just not – people don't know what's going so on. So they're not, they're not news reading the newspaper. So they're not reading the newspaper because there's no other <laughs> because, way that they can access the information. Yeah. Are you all finding that in your community? Just people just completely unaware – I wouldn't say unaware, but unsure about how it affects them. We don't have a lot of employers in our county who are large enough to be affected by this law, but those that are, um, last time we talked to them, we're really just trying to get their heads around it and uh, figure out what was the best deal for them and for their employees. And some of them have thought, well, if we can't figure it out right now, maybe we'll just take the fine for a year and sit it out and see what happens. Um, that's kind of where a lot of them are right now. I think the awareness is pretty high, but the confusion is probably equally as high. And the uh, chatter that, to me, still seems to be partisan-driven, and it's uh, it's just hard to cut through that. Uh, you you find those who say, "Yeah, we've had we're finding this to be um, a far more um, um, workable experience than what we were told it would be." And then on the other hand, you have the anecdotes that go the other direction, and all you have to do is look around the corner to see who's who, who's needling uh, these people to talk, and it's it's just generally all partisan at this point, which I think does make it difficult for someone who's really an independent thinker who's trying to uh, get their arms around this thing. It's hard to do just because of the incredible noise 
uh, that still surrounds this thing. That's what people we've talked to have said, too. Do you all think it's worse in Indiana, just given that you know, we didn't want to have the exchange here? and We're using the federal exchange instead of a state exchange and trying to extend the healthy Indiana plan it, again. It appears to be worse. You think so? Well, it's very instructive when you start uh, reading and, and listening to things that have happened in a place like Kentucky. Yeah. And it's certainly a lot different mood uh, down there than mm-hmm. what it is up here. And again, it, there's partisan underpinnings there. But uh, I think that does begin to tell us uh, some things about about Indiana's choices uh, on how to approach this, whether to expand its Medicaid system or not. And I think as time goes on, this will be a bigger story uh, uh, in in Indiana as uh, as people begin to assess, well, why didn't we? Why didn't we do this? Uh, it could have been so much better. And now we understand that maybe some of the problems we're having have nothing to do with the federal rollout as much as it had to do with stubborn decisions that were made for partisan reasons in the state. Are you talking in part about the people who maybe had insurance and, and now don't or, or who are just falling through that gap? They don't make enough money. That's, well, that's are, what, certainly yeah, one of sure. them. Um, my daughter doesn't make enough money to qualify for the uh, ACA, but she, went, she can't get into the healthy Indiana because it's frozen and there's no room for her. Uh, she's told that she just has to wait. Um, so, well, you know, that's not a federal rollout problem. Right. Right. The grass is always greener on the other side. I mean, I know that a couple of other states have had problems with their state-based exchanges. Like, I know personally, Minnesota. That's you know, been following the news there. They've had some trouble. Like, I think Washington State had like had a freeze up that it's otherwise gone pretty well. But you know, like, there's a lot of places where you know the rollout of even a state-based exchange has has also been particularly troublesome. So you know, it will got, be in. Got both of that. It'll be interesting to, to continue to follow. And I, like like you said, in terms of paying the fines, I think we've heard that from a lot of people too. The first year, let's just take the fine. I think it's a hun- roughly a hundred dollars if you don't sign up. But then it, it goes up quite a bit after that. So maybe that'll be enough to they'll get it together, and we'll all understand it a year from now. <laughs> maybe. <laughs> let's hope, right? Right. Um, other other big national stories, and please, other ones you have on your list, but um, the federal government shutdown was obviously a big one and just the impact in Indiana, which I, th- I think we were spared. It hit us less than the many states because, you know, largely it seemed to affect the military and Crane was pretty Crane escaped. Was, Crane was in a state of confusion. Um, exactly what kind of uh, a furlough uh, penalties were going to happen over there. Uh, people were, um, you know waiting to find out for a long time what what was going to happen to them. And uh, I guess it wasn't as bad as initially it might have seemed to be. But it was bad enough, you know, to have any kind of uh, period of unemployment and, um, you know, in- income drop. So The National Guard, I know, obviously it hit. I think, I think did you all do, you all did a piece just about just grants and how those are held, just things you yes, wouldn't even think yes, about. Yes, research grants. There, there were just 101 unexpected consequences that, I mean, maybe they were expected, but the average citizen didn't realize that this was what a government shutdown type of situation was going to produce. So uh, we did some stories on IU research and, and other things that got held up. It seems like the, the story impacted not necessarily on a broad base, but there were some very specific – within education at least, there were some specific subsets of, of, of groups that it, that it impacted. Um, Head Start, uh, the number of Head Start spots uh, was decreased. That was sort of through – partially because of the shutdown, partially because of sequestration. I think that the, the, the shutdown made it so that – uh, th- that it seemed like you know it, it's possible that some of these Head Start programs might not be able to open this year. So there was that impact. We did a story about how special education programs would essentially have to try and farm out the costs, and they can be very high costs of treating you know profoundly disabled children in schools and and you know serving their their educational needs. Th- that's expensive and. 
if federal money went away, then that would displace money within district budgets. And so, you know, in that way, there's sort of a domino effect. But it is, it's a, it's a domino effect to get to where it impacts a broader base of population. I, I wonder if that explains why we don't, you know, at the time we thought this is a huge political problem for every incumbent member of Congress. And, and, and now here we are a couple months removed, and I think a lot of people have forgotten about it. Well, what do you all think just for your, your local... You know, it, it was a. It certainly was. It was a partial shutdown, and and uh, the the places that felt it, it was targeted places that got federal funds, and, and the mental health centers, and as you as as you mentioned, some of the uh, specific services directed towards children and other areas. But it didn't. Uh, it didn't seem like, and, and we were sure out there combing, looking for mm-hmm. for major impacts, and it was hard to really point to anything that uh, that was uh, overwhelming. Uh, so it could, could have been worse, uh, and uh, I think again, it probably your your political perspective and a lot of the chatter still is driven by partisanship, like so many of these issues are anymore. It's you really have to work. Uh, and use your independent mind to think these things through and and get away from from the partisan chatter sometimes or else you'll just be totally confused. One of the other big things we covered a lot here was just the Boston Marathon bombing. And I looked up a couple of your communities and I know in Bloomington, of course, there were local people who, who were we there. We have people who it. go to the Boston Marathon every year. Yeah. Um, it's, you know, it's a national story. It wasn't a local story. Um but, of course, one of the uh, jobs of a journalist is to uh, draw the national story down to a local level and explain how somebody from our community might have experienced this tragedy. And, and that's pretty much how our coverage went, uh, other than coverage of the event. And several local people went. We did. We had, uh, we had a, uh, a group of runners there. They were um, – they were not directly affected by the explosion, but they were in the area. They, their families got separated, and they had those moments of anxiety, not knowing where each other were and understanding that something serious had happened, but they didn't know what. Uh, so that first wave, uh, it, it was, was kind of scary for a lot of those folks. And then we also had um, a couple of area students at Harvard who were involved in the lockdown uh, of the campus uh, in the subsequent days as they were pursuing uh, the suspects. So uh, we uh, sure, sure made for some uh, some interesting times, interesting stories. Uh, nobody was directly, uh, you know, affected by it, but certainly indirectly they were. Another national story we became directly a part of was that tornado outbreak. Right. That that I think we'd be totally remiss without without mentioning. I mean, you know, obviously the big story was Washington, Illinois, but our own Washington got hit um, as as well as as Kokomo, and I, I mean, Indiana sort of got sucked into. The, the national kind of coverage that, that surrounded that as well. Uh, you know, completely devastating impact, and we're still sort of watching that play out. Say in terms of disaster recovery money that comes to the area, and I know I think Howard County is appealing to see if they're going to be able to get some help rebuilding the community and for low-interest loans, but you know, dozens and dozens of homes. Take, but no one in Indiana was killed, mm-hmm. which I think is important. Um, but certainly that was that was one of our biggest stories here. A little out of probably your all's coverage area. So. Well, it's odd that we've. I don't know what's going on with the I seventy corridor, but it seems like any time there's a lately there's been any major outbreaks of weather, it goes south of us and it goes north of us, and we ended up we end up getting a more minor uh, weather event. I suppose that may change one of these days, but for now we're we're wondering what's going on. It's there. climate changes. Uh, you know, it's kind of unpredictable. <laughs> you just never know where where it's going to go. But it hasn't hit us yet. No. I won't. I won't forget. Even though there was no damage that came out of it, you know, I came in on that Sunday afternoon. I, I will not very soon forget seeing the the alert come across from the National Weather Service saying there is a destructive tornado you know, eight miles west of Bedford. And obviously, you know, it didn't materialize. I don't think it ever even hit any homes, um, you know, as far as, I, as far as I've heard in the follow-up. But, I, I mean, you know, I won't forget thinking, oh, my goodness, there is a large tornado going. And I saw this. The, you look at the radar, and it was headed right for Bedford. And I thought, oh, my goodness, what are we, what are we watching here? And so I won't forget sitting right through that wall there in the studio wondering what's, uh, you know, what's going on. So 
Those times as a journalist, I think, are always some of the toughest and make you feel so small and so powerless. And then when you go out and then report on it, those are, those are hard moments, and I you think. You can be torn, I think, between being with your family, who also needs protection, and doing your mm. job. Absolutely. Which is difficult to go out and watch other folks deal with it when you know your folks at home might not be, you know, very safe. <laughs> right. Right. Uh, I want to ask you, Sarah, about the noise ordinance in Brown County. It's something we've oh covered goodness. quite a bit of and then with motorcyclists and what's going on. Uh, I, I dread <laughs> seeing that on town council agendas. <laughs> it makes meetings two hours longer than they really need to be. Um, <laughs> It's it's hard to hard to drill this down really. Um, folks come to Brown County for certain reasons, and they are varied. Um, some of us come to Brown County because it's out of the ordinary. It's not a city. It's a quiet, peaceful place. And some of those folks who want to preserve that uh, have been very vocal about wanting to preserve that and wanting to uh, make sure that other folks who also have a right to enjoy Brown County in their own way, which might be on a motorcycle which might be, I don't know, having outdoor concerts, don't infringe on that right. And so the town council has been in the awkward situation of trying to balance those two interests and do what's best for the town and actually the county, too, because it affects the county, um, and try not to alienate any kind of, kind of visitor. And it's, I don't envy their position. There have been a lot of very contentious meetings and uh, accompanying press, which may or may not have been based on facts uh, by different outlets, <laughs> uh, that's, that's kind of hurt the image of Nashville, I'm afraid. And I, I think it remains to be seen if they'll be coming back like they have been in droves for years and years uh, after all of this you know, hits full force and goes the way it will go uh, in the news stream. Um, so I, I'm, I'm waiting to see. Uh, it could be a story that just blows over and everybody forgets about it next year when the leaves change and and Brown County still calls. Um, yeah. But it's been it's been tedious to sit through. It was interesting to see in your, your Google alert that Brown County shows up and I forget the name, but some motorcycle publication. Yes. You're thinking, oh, no, what <laughs> yes. is this about? But not all motorcycles are, are terribly loud. Correct. And uh, Correct. there are a lot of weekend motorcyclists who do not have loud motorcycles who come through town. And um, so, you know, there's still a good base of tourism for Correct. the motorcycle, the two-wheel crowd. Yes, and they have a big impact on our local economy, or so we've been told. There are at least two large biker events that happen in Brown County that draw thousands of people. So uh, the town council understands that you can't really tell those people you're not welcome because that's not good for the overall economy, and it's not fair to those who want to enjoy Brown County in the way they believe it should be enjoyed. Yeah. And, Max, I want to ask you about the Coke and Carbon plant and the cleanup that's going on there. Something we haven't followed up on in, in a few months, I think, but I'm sure there's an update. Well, it's getting close. Uh, I drive by it every day. I mean, it's a huge property. And uh, it's been vacant for many years. And uh, they finally got around in the last uh, year or so to uh, doing the environmental cleanup. And it, it is progressing. And um, I, I, think, uh, I think overall we're – very uh, close to closing in on the end of uh, that long episode, uh, and it, it's looking good. They're still working there every day. Uh, even some of the bad weather days, you you, you see them out there. And, uh, you know, it's not always a lot to, to watch when you just have a vacant lot and, and they're just removing <laughs> dirt and replacing dirt, and it's – uh, you know, it puts you to sleep if you want to. You today? <laughs> <laughs> with snow on it, no, <laughs> and that's where it's, where it's been. But uh, we're, it's very close uh, to being finished. I, I would anticipate just within the next few months, it'll be finished, and then and then the city can turn its attention toward redevelopment of that property and try to come to grips with uh, the value of it. Uh, um, something they haven't had to worry about for a long time, and all of a sudden now they're going to have this. Uh, Gigantic uh, property and a uh, right right on a main corridor, transportation corridor that uh, has been redeveloped, and uh, it, it's going to be um, it's going to be interesting to see. Uh, there's a lot of good potential there. 
That's interesting. How much is the city? How much the city is really helping fund that cleanup, right? But the city owns the uh, city they own owns the, the land. property, and of okay. course, the uh, you know environmental monies are going into it. It's uh, you know a lot of different kinds of uh, of money goes into the cleanup of these sorts of things. Being a brownfield site, the way it was, uh, it got a lot of federal funds. But the city owns the property. They're the ones that are doing the redevelopment and uh, have certainly had to put some some money into the in, in, into the cleanup. And I, I have to ask about just the latest in the Lauren Spear case. And it was something that, that we've been covering quite a bit and, and you have as well in terms of the civil suit. And so. Yes. the um, As you know, there hasn't been any significant break in that case. And there is a civil suit that is still pending um, regarding uh, several of the friends of Lauren Spear who, who were the last to see her that night when she disappeared. It has been a number of years, and, you know, I'm blanking on exactly what it was two, uh, it's been, next year, it's been two and a half years. years. So, um, and it has, you know, kind of been less in the news lately because of that. It's it's natural for it to kind of take a, a back seat now because... The process of the civil suit is sort of a slow judicial procedure sort of oriented thing. And we're keeping an eye on it. And we do keep in touch with the sparers uh, when we can and with the investigation um, as we can. But yeah. there's, you know, there really isn't any prospect of something big happening uh, that we can, you know, right. realistically expect. Um, you mentioned it being out of the public eye. Some it was interesting. It's one. a little bit. They they they've removed some of the signs downtown. Right. That was right. that was a um, bit of an issue. Uh, there were there were reasons for those signs, good reasons, and uh, there were some you know logical reasons for uh, taking them down. Not so much emotional reasons, um, but uh, I think uh, Mark Cruzan, our mayor, had uh, had to balance a, a certain. Um, practicalities against uh, the emotional needs of the community on, on that one, and it was a hard call. Right. I mean, I mean that that's the thing that sticks out to me is is after seeing those signs up for, you know, even for you know, for two and a half, almost three mm-hmm. years. I mean, that's the thing that sticks out for for me about that story is seeing them finally begin to 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 be taken down. I, I mean that. Might be what this that may be the most significant development in this case is sort of the fact that after three years the community is starting to you know kind of put this on the back burner, mm-hmm. kind of put this on the shelf in in a way. I think that's a really significant development in its own way in, in that story this year. One of the things I know you've you've covered is I think maybe probably all your papers the Lifeline Law. Mm-hmm. Sort of feeds into this a little bit, right? We and we've had a couple of student, you know, deaths here on campus, and and that one in particular uh, that that was sort of at the beginning of this school year, I believe, that this academic year at at Indiana University, obviously, sort of being, you know, how how students treat uh, alcohol related incidents on campus, and just sort of talking about how you know the, the Lifeline Law is. You know, is is not perfect, but it's 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 one way for students to sort of deal with these incidents in a way where where they can get to the hospital and not necessarily fear repercussions. Um, but uh, you know, to try and focus more on that and that and that the law definitely got a lot of attention after that after the the death of the student here um, on campus because there are some loopholes in the law, right? Yeah, I mean the the and I can't. I can't tell you right now what they are. I need to to look it up. But the the law is intended to help students, um, dis, you know, make the decision to call or seek help if they have an unconscious colleague or peer who's drunk too much or has an alcohol overdose. Um, it's supposed to protect them from uh, police prosecution. Uh, I, I hope that it does that. I mean, the the student who died this year. It, it seemed like maybe the friends of that student didn't realize the, the possibility of 
protection under that law. I don't know. Some of the things we had heard is that it didn't protect, so it wouldn't protect the person who was passed out or something. It would protect the friend who called, right? Is that right, Kyle? I, I, I think it was something like that, but I think um, Senator Merritt, I believe, yeah, but, was the you know, one who all sponsored of this, that. I mean, it's a life or death situation in these situations. Uh, and calling for help should be something that is uh, done, just you know, dial 911 or take your friend to the hospital. Anything that can raise awareness about that would be a step in the right direction. And so that's why that lifeline law is a step in the right direction. I want to ask as we, we're running out of time here, but there is one issue that we should mention that probably will come up a lot in, in the upcoming year, and I want to hear your predictions on it, is the gay marriage ban. House Joint Resolution mm-hmm. 6. House Joint Resolution 6. Yes. Where do you think this all goes? I'm, I'm interested in, in the uh, survey of the panel, the well, vote of the panel. I'm, I, you know, in, in Bloomington, at least, there have been a number of endorsements <laughs> that have come out. The Chamber of Commerce, Indiana University, um, Ivy Tech, uh, Am I missing anybody? The city council. Um, there has been a request by a school board member that the school board endorse. Uh, so Bloomington is a community behind this joint resolution. Um, and I hope that uh, that it passes personally. I mean, the uh, not passes, not the amendment. What am I saying? I hope that it's defeated <laughs> and uh, that the um, Constitution is not amended. But that's my opinion as a private person. And of course, the Herald Times has taken a stance on that also. And Max, Indiana State weighed in on it as well. They did. Uh, they were a, a, a bit of a latecomer uh, to uh, to the discussion, but that's all right. Uh, you know, it's getting close now to start of the legislative session. So maybe their timing was, was fine, but uh, certainly it was good to see them uh, step forward and, and weigh in. You kind of want your higher ed uh, institutions to do so. Um, beyond that, our political structure hasn't uh, has, has kind of avoided getting involved in it, and I don't know that I fault them for that. Uh, I don't I don't expect um, the city council or the mayor's office or the county council to weigh in. Maybe they will. Uh, I'm not sure it really matters uh, at this point if they if they do or if they don't. What we've seen happen with our Democrat legislators, uh, the ones who initially voted in favor of. Um, of the same-sex marriage ban have now reversed their uh, their positions and have and have stated uh, that they uh, believe they were initially wrong and will the next time around in the legislature vote against it. However, uh, the Republican legislators uh, are taking the position now that let the voters decide. Let's just put it on the ballot, and I think that's what probably what will happen. Um, unless some lightning bolt strikes the uh, uh, the, the state house, I believe it'll be on the ballot, and I think it stands a very good chance of uh, of actually being defeated in okay. the fall. Okay. Well, thank you all so much for coming in. I'm sorry, Sarah, didn't time didn't have time to get to you on that question, but certainly you can find coverage of HJR six. I'm sure in all of these papers. Thank you so much to our guests, Max Jones, Andrea Murray, and Sarah Clifford, and to my co-host Kyle Stokes for engineer Mike Pash Cash and producer Emily Wright. Thanks for listening. Edition is a production of WFIU and the Herald Times. A podcast of this and other WFIU programs is available at WFIU.org. Production support comes from Smithville, a locally owned business serving central and southern Indiana since 1922 with residential and business internet, voice, and security services. Smithville, local pride, global technology. Information at smithville.net and from IU School of Public Health Bloomington, addressing public health needs by preventing disease, promoting health, and improving quality of life across the state and around the world through research, teaching, and community engagement, offering undergraduate and advanced degrees, publichealth.indiana.edu.